Thank you again for joining me on this episode of the Freed Thinker Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Tyler Vela. On today's episode, I'm going to be going through a paper that I submitted during my master's studies of the Gospels, dealing with an unusual story of the healing of the blind man, where it seems like it takes Jesus a couple tries to heal him, and what the purpose of that story is within the book of Mark. So we'll go through that. Sometimes atheists will use that as an example of some type of development of the story and some type of redactional history and some type of invention. And see, even the original followers didn't think that Jesus was divine and so on and so forth. So we'll take a look at uh, that passage and what it means within the context of Mark chapter 8. As always, if you'd like to support this, uh, this podcast, then head on over to Patreon or click the Become a Sponsor link on the page that you found, most likely found, this link to. Uh, we'd appreciate that. Your, any of your financial donations go, go towards helping the improvement uh, of this podcast. I hope some of you have been enjoying the Freed Way Thinker edition, some shorter episodes where I reflect on some current dialogues that I'm having on my Commute in horrible LA traffic, so a little bit more off the cuff, a little bit more winging it, but I hope some of you enjoy it. I've gotten some excellent feedback so far. Uh, if you can't support the episode or the show financially, please uh, head on over to iTunes and click on the submit a review. Submit a review, five stars, give us your comments and feedback. We greatly appreciate it. The greater the star rating, the greater we show up in search results. All right, well, let's dive right into this episode dealing with miracle as parable. Enjoy the show. Introduction. Most readers of the Gospels are familiar with the parables and the miracles of Jesus. They are frequently our most beloved sections in all of the Gospel accounts. In addition, there are instances where a miracle story functions as a kind of living parable that the Gospel author uses to illustrate a broader spiritual truth or historical example. We find just such an instance in Mark's Gospel. This episode will show that the healing of the blind man at Bethsaida in chapter 8, verses 22 to 26, serves just such a function and is best understood in the larger literary structure of Mark. The miracle presented in this pericope serves as a living parable of the spiritual condition of the disciples and illustrates their slow but certain enlightenment leading up to and beyond the resurrection. This episode will first explore interpretive issues with the pericope itself that aid in understanding the miracle itself, 
and then we'll investigate broader contextual issues in the surrounding passages that assist in establishing the role of the pericope in the overall message of Mark's gospel to his audience. Interpretive Issues Several factors come into play when dealing with the interpretation of this passage. These include geographical markers, the feature of the healing itself, and finally, the command for silence following the healing. First, the reader is told that Jesus and his disciples arrive at the waterfront town of Bethsaida, a city in, on the northeastern side of the Sea of Galilee, which was the hometown of several of the disciples, Philip, Andrew, and Peter. See John 1.44 and 12.21. A question can be raised at this point as to why Mark chose to call Bethsaida a Kome in 8.23. By all accounts, Bethsaida had gone under major renovations under Philip the Tetrarch around 31 CE, was renamed Bethsaida Julius in dedication to Julia, the daughter of the Roman emperor Tiberius Caesar, and would have certainly been considered a polis or a city by the time Mark penned his gospel, rather than a come or a town. The predominant view among commentators is simply that it had been called a come for so long that Bethsaida would have been ingrained into the verbal memory of the people as a come. However, if one takes an early date for the crucifixion, one may infer that Mark is reflecting the historical nature of the narrative by showing that this event did occur prior to the upgrades of Philip. A further question could potentially be raised about the occurrence of the miracle in Bethsaida of all places. On the one hand, this was a city, along with Corazon and Capernaum, that were condemned for their wickedness by Jesus in Matthew 11 and Luke 1. The choice of Bethsaida for the location may militate against the critical position that this story was invented by the gospel author. For healing is typically presented as being something done for those with faith, and yet Bethsaida is called one of the most faithless places in Israel at the time. However, one may then respond that there was no location better suited for a miracle revealing the blindness of the disciples than the faithless hometown of a handful of them. Thus, the location itself may not be useful in determining the historicity of the event beyond what has been said above. This may, however, shed light on why the miracle had to take place in stages, possibly due to the lack of the faith in the man himself, a citizen of the faithless town of Bethsaida. In addition to the specific geographical locale, we're told that Jesus led the man out of the village before healing him. This was not something uncommon for Jesus to do, and we observe just such a movement in the immediately preceding healing in Mark 7, where Jesus removes the deaf mute away from the crowd before healing him. This also occurred previously in chapter 5, when Jesus raised Jairus' daughter from the dead. However, commentators are divided on exactly why Jesus needs to remove the man from the city before the healing can occur. Did Jesus want to avoid the interruption of the crowd and give his sole attention to the blind man? Or was it in order to keep the crowds from starting to see Jesus, not as the Messiah, but merely as a run-of-the-mill magical faith healer? Here, Hendrickson states that the connection with the healing away from the crowd in 733 reinforces the former. However, it appears that such a solution only moves the problem back a step, for the same question could be asked of the healing in 733-35. At this point, with no clear indication as to one or the other, the safest position may be to assume Jesus had compound reasons 
for his action that could include both reasons and possibly others. Second, we can observe that this is only one of two miracles in all of the Gospels that is directly accomplished in stages and employs means not typical to most of Jesus' other healings. The only other instance has several noteworthy similarities to the present pericope. In both cases, the healing involved the blind man, and Jesus applied his own spittle to the subject's eyes. Additionally, in both cases, an additional step was needed, either a second touch of Jesus or a trip to the pool of Siloam. Mark does not even use his typical euthus, which is surprising considering that this was such a visit, visit, vivid and impressive miracle. By the way, for those listening, euthus is that term in Mark that typically is translated as immediately or and then suddenly or something along those lines by translators that drives his narrative. This dual stage miracle and some of the theological complications that it may bring on a superficial reading of the text may explain why the miracle is exclusive to Mark's gospel. For if Matthew and Luke were both using Mark, and they already had other healing stories that conveyed the power of Jesus of the death uh, of the deaf and the blind in fulfillment of the prophecies, then why would they want to include this passage, which may bring up questions about if Jesus was not completely powerful to heal? While it will be clear shortly that Mark was not attempting to show a limit in the power of Jesus, but rather has Jesus illustrating a spiritual blindness of his disciples, the avoidance of even that perception may have been prudent given their audiences. However, Johnson speculates that Matthew and Luke, being later works, may have understood Mark's purpose to illustrate the lack of faith of the apostles, but given the rising stature of the apostles and the authority structure of the early church, may have wanted to omit the story to diminish the perception of the apostles as lacking faith. This is unlikely for two reasons. <clears throat> First, if we understand that Mark is not necessarily writing these events in chronological order, then it is possible that he chose one miraculous healing to serve as an illustration of the spiritual blindness of the apostles, even though that may not have been the context within which the miracle occurred. Surely, if Mark had made such a literary adaptation, then Matthew or Luke could have re repurposed the miracle for some other objective as well. Yet the main problem here is that neither Matthew nor Luke shy away from showing the often blind and faithless character of the disciples throughout the ministry of Jesus. Why they would think that this one instance was so over the top when compared to, say, the triple rejection of Jesus by Peter seems to be beyond the pale. Nevertheless, however one views the relationship between the synoptic authors on this point, if we employ the criterion of embarrassment— we can readily understand this to increase our confidence in the historicity of the account because this kind of miracle story would not be something that the early church would have invented if it were not true. This may present a problem for those who favor the historical reliability of the gospel accounts. We can see this by asking the question, is the order of these events as Mark presents them historical or does Mark order these stories this way for a thematic reason, a la the messianic secret, even though they occurred in a different order in actual history. The problem here is, as we will see, the best understanding of Mark's intent behind 822-26 is about the progressive healing of the spiritual blindness of the apostles. And yet, if this event took place without the connection to the previous healing of the deaf-mute in 731-37, and not connected to the confession of Peter or the transfiguration— 
What purpose then would Jesus have had for the healing in such a slow and unusual manner? It fits very well with the narrative structure of Mark, but if Matthew and Luke thought it would be too problematic to remove it from the literary construct, then what does that say about the actual event? However, why should we think that Mark was inventing the theme of the healing of the blindness uh, of the spiritual blindness of the disciples? A simple resolution is that Mark merely picked up on this theme in the ministry of Jesus and drew it out more directly than Matthew or Luke did. Just because the events may not have followed the Markan chronology does not mean that Mark was inventing the spiritual truth behind the miracle. If the disciples were perpetually bumbling their faith, surely Jesus would have addressed it in his ministry in some shape or form. If the miracle as parable serves Mark well, why should we not think that it would have served Jesus well as well? The use of some natural means may have also been problematic for Matthew or Luke. It is commonly noted that spittle, along with with most other bodily fluids, was seen as a defiling substance and was not typically looked on with favor. However, Edwards points out that there is evidence that the spittle of certain important persons was seen as possessing healing powers. Edwards also notes that in the Hellenistic world, there was not such a strong limitation on the kinds of fluids and substances that would be employed in healing balms. This may have been why Jesus was willing to employ such a means. It would have been a signifier to those in the predominantly Gentile Decapolis to expect a healing to occur, whereas their bombs would typically have been ineffectual. Whatever the reason, it is clear by the time that the healing is over that it is complete to the utmost degree. In just three short verses from 23 to 25, Mark uses eight different words across nine instances to refer to the man regaining his sight. In fact, Mark clearly has no belief that Jesus' ability to heal was somehow lacking or diminished with certain ailments such as blindness. In every other case in his gospel, including with blindness in 1052, Mark presents Jesus' ability to heal as instantaneous. This should be a strong indicator to the reader that what is being presented here is not that Jesus struggled in some way to heal this specific blind man, but rather that something else was being addressed by the miracle. This connection to the broader themes in Mark will be explored in the closing section of this episode. Another important feature of the healing was that it was specifically the healing of a blind man. Witherington notes that in early Judaism, there was the perception that giving sight to the blind man may have been so nearly impossible that it was viewed as less likely than raising someone from the dead, and indeed, an action that only God's Messiah would be able to accomplish. If this is the case, then it surely adds gravity to Jesus' statements concerning his ministry, where he stated that he came to heal and to preach the coming of the kingdom of God, such as Matthew 4.23, 9.35, 21.14, and Luke 4.18, of which healing the blind was included. One could even say that Jesus taught that the evidence for the coming of the kingdom included the healing of the deaf and the restoring of sight to the blind, Matthew 11:46, given his response to John such that these were not two distinct aspects of the ministry of Jesus, but rather two sides of the same coin. The proper response that is to follow a miraculous healing is faith, something very unlike the response given in his hometown of Nazareth in 6, 1 through 6. The consistent image in the prophets and employed by Jesus and the apostles 
as to the spiritual state of a man is their ability to hear and see, or rather, their inability. This is in Isaiah 6, 9 through 10, 43, 8, Jeremiah 5, 21, Ezekiel 12, 12, Matthew 13, 14, Mark 4, 12, Luke 8, 10, John 12, 40, and Acts 28, 26, as well as Romans 11, 8. Therefore, when Jesus healed the sick and the deaf and the blind, he did so as illustrations of the power of the kingdom, as well as to reveal the spiritual healing that the coming of the kingdom would bring. Previously, in Mark 7, when Jesus heals the deaf mute, we are told that the man could hardly talk. This is a phrase only found in the Septuagint in Isaiah 35, 6, which tells of the messianic age that is to come where the tongue of the mute will shout for joy. This notion that physical blindness and deafness are merely representations of much more serious condition, spiritual blindness and deafness, will be explored further along in this present episode. In addition, some have drawn the connection between this healing of the blind man and his statement that he sees trees, or rather men that appear to be walking trees, a rather unusual construction in the Greek, with a story found in the myth of Asclepius, the Greek god of medicine. Epidarius writes, quote, The blind man saw a dream. It seemed to him that the God came up to him and with his fingers opened his eyes. And and at first he saw the trees in the sanctuary. At daybreak, he walked out sound. The idea that Mark has borrowed from Epidarius is wildly overstated, however. The healing in Mark does not occur in a dream, and the blind man that Jesus heals does not see actual trees, but rather sees men walking around. The reference to trees is an ironic statement to the effect that he knows that he sees men walking about, but his vision is still so blurry that they might as well be walking trees. The notion that Mark borrowed from Epidarius or some other such source would no doubt rely on the assumption that Mark was polemicizing the text in order to show that Jesus was the true healer. However, this would seem rather problematic if the story was borrowed and possessed no historical foundation, for it would render Mark's presentation of Jesus touching the man twice utterly nonsensical. For why would Mark attempt to show Jesus as a mightier healer than Asclepius, and yet make him need to touch the man twice, while Asclepius only needed to touch the man once? Therefore, beyond there being no literary or verbal reliance on Epidarius found in Mark, there also seems to be little reason to think that such a polemic was part of Mark's intent. Third, after the healing is completed, Jesus commands the man to not go back into the village, a clause that has been often amended in the manuscript traditions to make the intent clear by later scribes to include the command found in some manuscripts that the man was also to remain silent. While most textual critics hold that the reading found in Aleph, B, and L do not go into the village to be the most plausible, this saying appears to have been combined with an early Latin text, quote, do not speak to anyone in the village, end quote, to produce a longer reading, quote, do not go into the village and do not speak to anyone in the village, end quote, found most notably in the King James Version and Young's literal translation. While the longer reading is undoubtedly a scribal conflation of the original with a later reading, the intent seems effectively identical. The man was commanded to not go to the city in which he was most likely a known beggar, the only trade really open to someone of his condition, in which he would be forced to tell everyone about what had happened to him. Narrative Context 
A major key to understanding the function of this pericopean mark is to understand several of the other pericopes that surround it, and how it either builds on what came before it or directly alludes to what will follow. Not only are there direct verbal links between this and several other passages, but the literary links are clear and powerful. It is also apparent that Mark uses concentric circles of interconnectivity rather than a straightforward singular relationship to another passage. This will be shown shortly, but for now the connection between 822-26 and previous passages will be explored. One of the major correlations to the previous passage is found within the broader context surrounding this pericope. As is shown in a chart within a paper that I can link, the healing in Bethsaida completes a narrative structure in the parallels the previous section. The theological significance of this can, uh, can be readily seen by comparing the two sections. All right, I'm going to read through the chart that I have. In 635 to 737, there's one, the feeding of the 5,000, two, the crossing of the lake, three, the controversy with the Pharisees, four, the children's bread, five, healing symbolic of spiritual condition. And in 821 to 26, there's one, the feeding of the 4,000, two, a crossing of the lake, three, controversy with the Pharisees, four, the leaven of the Pharisees, and five, the healing symbolic of spiritual condition. The point at the end of each of these literary segments is that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah that Israel had been hungering for, but that this would stand in stark contrast to the tradition of the Pharisees. France notes an additional connection between 731 to 37 and the healing of the blind man in Isaiah 30, with Isaiah 35 to 5 through 6. The connection to 822 to 26 then cannot be overstated since Isaiah begins that prophecy about the return of the remnant from exile with a mention of the healing of the blind. Mark was clearly drawing back the curtains and revealing that Jesus was the one spoken of throughout the Old Testament as confirmed with these miracles. In addition to the broader connections, there are striking parallels between the healing accounts that terminate both of these sections. Both employ the phrases ferusin, which is they brought, and kaiperakalusin, uh, auton henna, and they begged him to, as well as kaiptusas, and he spat. In addition, we can see several uh, conceptual connections between the two passages, such as the request by others to heal the infirmed man by touching him, the movement of the subject into a more private location, the use of touch and spittle in the healing, and the command for secrecy following the healing are all found in both accounts. There are so many similarities, in fact, that some, like Boltmann, were led to conclude that 822-26 was a doublet invented as a modified version of the previous miracle story and must not be considered a historical event. The problem with that view is that in order to establish the position that one pericope was invented would require far more than noting simplistic similarities. In fact, the differences between the passages appear just as dramatic. Not only are the medical conditions different between the two subjects, other notable differences are the lack of the reference to Isaiah 35 prophecy from the later pericope, as well as the addition of the second touching for healing, something no gospel writer would have invented as shown above. Not only does this pericope follow close on the heels of the miracle found in 731-37, to as already presented, but it also intimately related to what follows. 
This has led many scholars to disagree about whether it ends the previous section or if it starts a new transitional section between the opening and closing acts of Mark's gospel. For example, De Silva argues that the healing of the blind man in 822-26 actually forms an inclusio with the healing of the blind man, Bartimaeus, in Mark 10.46-52, and is bound together with three passion predictions in 8.31, 9.31, and 10.33-34. To support this view, there also appears to be a shift in the way Mark presents the function of Jesus' ministry at this point. While Mark is riddled with miracles leading up to 8.22-26, besides the inclusio completion at 10.46-52 and one exorcism in 9.14-29, there are no more miracles on Jesus' march to the cross. Furthermore, Jesus also turns his attention away from Ha'aklas and focuses almost exclusively on the private instruction of the disciples, that is, away from the crowds to the disciples. One thing that all scholars appear to agree upon is that the miracles of 731-37 and 822-26 function as living parables representing the spiritual blindness of the disciples. The spiritual blindness motif is common in the Gospels and has previously been presented to Mark's readers by the time they arrive at 731. Mark has also already made use of the prophecy in Isaiah 6, 9-10, through regarding the making of the people blind so that they will not turn and be healed. He employed it in 4.12 to show a contrast between the privilege of the disciples and those of the crowds. However, as Mark progresses through the ministry of Jesus, the privilege of the disciples wanes, and they are repeatedly showed to be spiritually deaf and blind and themselves in need of the healing touch of Jesus. Mark first presents this shortly after Jesus tells them of the blindness of the people when the disciples are rebuked for lacking faith in the storm in 440, and uh, and then see their deafness and blindness surrounding these two miracles in 652, 718, and 816 to 18. The major question then becomes how this two-stage miracle maps onto Mark's narrative presentation of the progressive healing of the disciples. Is there a two-stage healing for them as well? Some commentators will locate the first overcoming of the blindness of the disciples at the confession of Peter in Mark 9, and the second at the transfiguration. There are certain literary features that can be observed which support this position. We can see the parallels between the healing of the blind man in 8.21-26 and the immediately following section where Jesus questions the disciples on who the people say they are. The similarities are as follows. 8.21-26. Number one, Jesus leads the blind man away to a secluded area. Number two, the first outcome is imperfect. Number three, Jesus asks for clarity. Number four, the second outcome is complete. Number five, the man is commanded to secrecy. Whereas in 8.27-30, it follows the same pattern. Number one, Jesus leads the disciples away to a secluded area. The first outcome is imperfect. Jesus asks for clarity. The second outcome is complete and the disciples are commanded to secrecy. Immediately following this section, we then come across Jesus sternly rebuking Peter for rejecting his teaching that he must suffer and die. Many have marveled that the great apostle Peter could go from such a strong confession of Jesus as the Christ in verse 29 to such an abysmal rejection of the most pivotal aspect of the ministry of Christ in verse 32. 
Seeing this as just one brushstroke in Mark's theme concerning the healing of spiritual blindness of the disciples should greatly aid the reader of Mark's gospel in understanding why these two events are placed back to back, as well as why the transfiguration then follows so quickly on its heels. This position is not without its problems, however, given that even the second healing at the transfiguration is not complete, apparently. Mark shows in the section directly following that the disciples do not have the faith to heal, 9.19, as well as numerous examples where they clearly do not understand what following Christ entails, such as 9.33-35, 10.13-14, and 10.41. This may also explain why this section ends with the healing of another blind man, Bartimaeus, indicating that another healing was needed. Surely Jesus' own death and resurrection, which he continually predicted, is in view. Putting the Pericope Together The best way to understand the role of 822-26, then, is to understand the relationship of a series of concentric circles rather than any rigid grid connection that the pericope has to any other single event. The idea of the miracle was clearly to reveal the blindness of the disciples, but rather than attempting to find a rigid two-stage healing of their condition as suggested above, Mark's point may have been somewhat looser than that. Seemingly, the idea is that the disciples were not yet seeing or hearing fully and would need subsequent touches of Jesus, the confession of Peter, the transfiguration, the crucifixion, and then, ultimately, the resurrection and ascension of Jesus. Further, this can be seen from the fact that after each of the passion predictions within this second act, that the disciples are described as still not possessing a full understanding of what has or is about to happen, or what it means to follow Jesus to the cross. If Mark intended, for example, that the transfiguration in 9-2-9 to be understood as the culmination of the healing of the blindness of the disciples, then why would he explicitly state that they did not understand that the Messiah must be crucified in 10-32, or that sitting with Christ in glory involves suffering in 10-38? For Mark, the process of healing appears to have been a continuing progression within the rest of his gospel, and the twofold process in healing of the blind man was not to give the number of steps that it would take, but rather was simply to illustrate that it would take multiple touches of Jesus for the healing to be complete. Mark may have resonated with the promise that such progressive healing holds out to the reader. Consider Mark's own biography from within the pages of the New Testament. This was a man whose initial service to Christ was marked by imperfect faith, trepidation, and ultimately abandonment. However, he was eventually able to venture out again in faith and was shown grace and forgiveness. He was ultimately restored to fellowship with Paul and became the trusted companion of Peter. This message of hope that there is healing for the spiritual blindness and fear may have been something so meaningful to Mark that he was willing to include its lessons to the church even at the risk of having people wonder about the power of Christ in the two-stage healing. For Mark, then, this healing passage may be vitally pastoral. Calvin appears to have anticipated this parabolic miracle should be understand, understood not just as a picture of the spiritual blindness of the disciples and their needing of healing, but also for the spiritual healing of all who would be disciples of Jesus. Followers of Jesus should not allow our expectation for healing to require something spontaneous and immediate, if that be not the desire of the Lord. Calvin observed, quotes, quote, And so the grace of Christ, which had formerly been poured out suddenly on others, flowed by drops, as it were, on this man. End quote. 
We can see this not only as a fulfillment of the hope for physical healing, but as a deep and abiding realization of the promises given to the Israel and given to Israel in the Old Testament. When Messiah comes, there will be healing, rejoicing, and newness in all of life. It may not happen in an instant, but we persevere to the end where our sight will be restored, our ears opened, and our tongues loosed, and our dead, cold limbs given new life to dance as David danced. Well, thank you again for joining me on this episode of the Freed Thinker podcast. As always, if you have any questions, comments, concerns, commendations, or condemnations, please feel free to visit the blog at freedthinkerpodcast.blogspot.com, email me at freedthinkerpodcast at gmail.com, or head on over to the Freed Thinker group page on Facebook. Thank you so much. Good night, and God bless.